Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Steve Savitsky, and today I'm really, really privileged to have in Israel, in Jerusalem, to talk to Rabbi Stephen Przansky. Rabbi Przansky, who was, of course, the Rav for over 25 years of the B'nai Yeshurun Synagogue in Teaneck, New Jersey, and then for almost nine years was the rabbi in Eitzchayim in Kew Garden Hills, and I re- remember him, of course, from Kew Garden Hills. And he was also the president of the Vat of Queens. He was and is a senior scholar at the Yeshiva of Migdal HaTorah in Modiim. Uh, he's the Israel Regional VP of Coalition of Jewish Values. Distinguished background with BA from Columbia University in history, law degree from Cardoza, Smicha from B'nai Torah, from Rav Chait, author of several scholarly books. I'm sure I don't have all of them, Repentance for Life and A Prophet for Today. Uh, someone who is really a dynamic, uh, incredibly charismatic rabbi, and I'm really privileged and honored to have you join me today for this podcast. Steve, I'm delighted to be here and to welcome you to Yerushalayim. Thank you so much. So I guess the first thing people always want to know is, what are you doing now? I mean, now that you're not the rabbi of the shul and you're not working 24-7, uh, is your life any different? Is it calmer? What's happened? It's different. Uh, maybe a little calmer, not much. I would say that it's almost a lateral move that I was able to make in the sense that these days I do almost everything I did in the rabbinate except deal with Balabatim. That's not to say there's anything wrong with dealing with Balabatim. I, I enjoy that aspect of the rabbinate, but in terms of learning and teaching and speaking and writing, that really takes up most of my day. But it's the day-to-day involvement with your congregants that I miss, that I don't have, but that's a different, that's a certain aspect of the rabbinate. So in that sense, there's a uh, transition. On a daily basis, I have a daily WhatsApp that I send out uh, Dvar Torah, about six minutes or so to hundreds of people, they receive it. I just, I'm finishing my sixth book. Sixth, wow. Yeah, oh. Entitled Vigaalti Etchem, Road to Redemption, to be published, I hope, this spring in time for Pesach by uh, Kodesh Press. Oh, Kodesh it's on Press. Pesach. It's really a compilation edited uh, for reading purposes uh, of my Shabbat Hagadol drashot over the oh, years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Repentance for Life was the Shabbat Shuvah drashot. Yeah. So it's interesting to revisit it because sometimes many of the things that I said, I relive. And some of them go back decades, of course. And uh, you know, a lot of the same problems, same issues arise even today. So it's very fascinating writing. I teach, as you noted, in Migdala Torah. I give shiurim locally. I speak locally in different shuls, uh, in Hebrew and in English, which to me was the biggest surprise. If it's an Israeli audience, I've been able to develop, I wouldn't say fluency, but enough to get by, that they don't throw uh, rocks at me, (laughs) they understand. The same vocabulary in Hebrews and English, but uh, I'm working on it, then it grows. 
and uh, you know English also for the English speaking audiences. So that's like you're a pretty busy guy. Yes, that's correct. But the social, I mean, the social aspect of being a rabbi that that consumed a great deal of your time. Didn't it? I mean, the the life cycle events. That's a big change. What I used to call the cocktail party circuit. But that means you know, britot, sheva brachot, weddings. Uh, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, uh, and then lahavdil. Unfortunately, funerals and shiva, bikur cholim, those are much less intensive now. So that's what I mean by the daily involvement with people is not as much. I'm still in touch with many people, B'nai Shurin, of course, and many people still call me the questions or ask for advice, but it's not the same as it was. And I think a lot of rabbis will tell you, because I remember before I left B'nai Shurin, one of my colleagues uh, mentioned to me, you'll see the day after the biggest change in your life is an immediate reduction of stress because you're no longer fearing that dreaded phone call that somebody died or some family just uh, endured a tragedy. That stops. And I don't think people realize that there is tremendous stress in the rabbinate. I made it look easy, of course, but uh, nonetheless. Yes, absolutely, of course, no question There's a lot of stress. I remember David Pelkovitz spoke once, I think it was an RCA convention, and he said that they measured the stress level of different professions and the stress level of the rabbinate was on a par with the residents of Three Mile Island after the nuclear meltdown. And that phrase sticks in my head now, almost 20 years later. But the rabbit has changed so much also. You know, one time at the OU, we did a... Uh, a magazine cover, then I did a video on rabbis who had been rabbis of congregations for 60 years. We had Rabbi Schoenfeld, Rabbi, um, you know, uh, Grossman, Grumblatt, yeah. Grumblatt, Belkowitz, we had Rabbi Shroy, we had a whole batch of them. And so the day that I did the interview in the OU Center, a lot of the rabbinic people who were working in the OU came in. And a lot of them, even though they work at the OU, they have jobs, they're also rabbis. And so I asked them, how could, I asked the rabbis, how could you work at a job for 60 years? And they said, well, we love the job every day. There was no, you know, like we look forward to it every day and there was no burnout factor of a Schoenfeld, you know, no burnout factor and so on. Anyway, so they left. When it was over, a lot of the rabbis came to me and said to me, what are they talking about? They said, like, you know, they used to go away for the summer. They go to the bungalow. And they would send a postcard to the congregation. If you need me, send me a thing. We're on 24-7. If you need me, send me a postcard. Right. And here he said, Rabbi said to me, if we don't answer the congregant in 10 seconds, they're like, Rabbi, where, what happened? You didn't do it. So he said, our level yeah. of stress is so much more than it was then. Well, in that sense, you're correct, because there's much greater lachats, much greater pressure with the age of the internet and texting. Because if you don't respond to a text right away, then people get very nervous. I was always very good about returning phone calls, you know, within an hour or so. Uh, but uh, there is that sense that you want immediate results. You know, we call the microwave generation. You want a fully cooked meal in two minutes. Well, you want an answer to a pressing Shayla in two minutes as well, regardless of what the rabbi's doing. That's amazing. So anyway, so... But do you miss, uh, you, you don't miss that part of the rabbit, do you? Well, I don't miss the stressful aspects of it. I only miss the people, really, because uh, B'nai Ashurin was a very wonderful environment for me, and uh, I think the people appreciated it as well. And my measure was, you know, my metric for leaving was something I think uh, people in all walks of life, especially in public positions, should embrace, and that is 
better to leave when they want you to stay than to stay when they want you to leave. Because the latter is much more common. Yeah, there's no question that, that that's a very fine art that people have a very hard time mastering, no matter what it is. I don't care what, uh, you could be the greatest athlete in the world. That's we correct. It. We see it all the time. They just stay a little bit too long. It's very right. hard. I did, I did not want the rabbinic equivalent of Willie Mays falling down in the outfield, chasing a ball in the World Series this in 1973. Okay, I agree. And that's hard, it's hard to do. It's hard, it's hard to know when. But the, that's why you have to find a parallel outlet. And I think I was, uh, so far I feel I'm successful in doing that and recognizing, going back to your original question, that uh, sad to say I benefited from the uh, coronavirus pandemic because I came here in the middle of the pandemic, uh-huh. July of 2020. So started March of 2020. So those last four or five months in B'nai Ashurim, difficult for everyone. You know, the shul didn't function as it ordinarily did. I was able, thank God, to reopen the shul in June for outdoor minyanim and in July for indoor minyanim. But the activities was, were much more restricted. So I didn't have those months of uh, farewell that really start to weigh on you and the, and the congregants. But then I came to Israel and I experienced here, uh, you know, two shutdowns. Also, society was closed. In fact, someone asked me in Israel, how'd you like a greeting so far? So I said, well, the government shut down the society twice in order to greet me, so (laughs) take it for what it's worth. Uh, But because of that, because all activity was shut down, I had to find ways to keep busy in line with my own proclivities and interests, and I was able to do that, such that when the pandemic ended, I was already in a routine. That's great. That's wonderful. So is Israel what you pictured it would be? I mean, I know you visited visited a hundred times. Yeah, I've been coming here for many, many years. I don't really have any illusions about uh, life in Israel. You know, I was never that uh, uh, rosy-eyed about it, Pollyannish, but I am deeply appreciative. And there's not a day that I wake up that I just don't look outside and see outside my Mirpeset, the Hare Binyamin, the mountains of Binyamin. I go to Shul and have Birchat Kaanim. There's not a Damalevi, so I go wash their hands. There's not a moment that I don't think about that and uh, appreciate, you know, Chaste Hashem, that I'm in this position today. Why did you pick Modiyin, by the way? Is that your children live there? Well, it's actually, we uh, came here first uh, 15 years ago, in 2007. So we had a place here since then. And as it, as it is at the time, 2007, my son was learning in Shalvim, and my wife's sister was living in Chashmonim, and uh, my in-laws had just bought an apartment on the other side of uh, Modiyin. Uh, so therefore, I... There are many calculations involved. So proximity to family was one, but I want to live in the center of the country also. It's very easy access to wherever you want to go. Almost equidistant between your Shalim and Tel Aviv. And I think from my personal perspective, I didn't want to live in a completely Anglo community, nor amongst American Rabbanim. Not that there's anything wrong with them. No, of course not. God forbid. But I felt, especially I was starting, that's when I wrote my first book on my first sabbatical in 2007, 2008, and I didn't want to have to go through the whole scene of, you know, seeing the same people and talking the same things and not really integrating into Israeli society. Uh, so that's why we chose Modi'in, and it's a mixed community. It's also on my street. You have religious people, people not religious. Yeah, it's, a great, and, it's, a great, yeah. it's a great community. I mean, it's a wonderful 
wonderful community. People are moving there like crazy. Right, and the Shulai Davenin is uh, almost all Anglos. Someone asked me, you know, what's the percentage of Anglos? I said, ah, maybe 60, 70 percent. And someone from the Shul was listening to me, and he said, are you kidding? It's 99 percent Anglo. But I hear Hebrew in the morning, so I assume uh, there are others there as well. Which is a question I always think about, like, the rabbi's role when it comes to stressing Aliyah. And, you know, I think it's such a complex situation because if you really talk about it, I mean, I've been in shuls where the rabbi spoke about Aliyah every week until finally people in the shul said, if you want it, go. But stop talking about it. On the other hand, you can't not talk about it because it's the right thing to talk about it. So how do do you do that? I always spoke about it. Not, uh, I didn't badger the people about it, but everyone always knew that it was a value that I uh, professed and that I would someday fulfill, and I openly expressed regret that I couldn't fill it at an earlier stage in my life. I, we tried to make Aliyah twice, actually, my wife and oh, really? I. Yeah. Oh, and you yeah. took sabbaticals, you mean? No, no, earlier. Before earlier. you started the rabbit? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Even before Kew Garden Hills? Uh, well, I was in Kew Garden Hills. Oh, okay. 1989, I was offered a position in Netanya as the rabbi of a shul there. And uh, I was ready. We went for an in- interview. They, yeah, probably they accepted me. And I had passed the Israeli bar also at the time. Oh, wow. So I was going to practice law and, uh, and be a rabbi as well. Unfortunately, such a concept was unheard of in this particular shul, which was run mainly by, uh, not to insult them at all, but older British uh, people were very regimented in their thinking, and they thought it was uh, beyond propriety for a rabbi to be a lawyer. And I felt I couldn't make a living just on the salary they were paying me, and uh, that didn't work out. And then five years later, right before Teaneck, I was involved in starting a yeshiva here, and then we ran into some difficulties. The direction of the yeshiva was one which eventually became one that I did not want to pursue myself, less Zionist in a, in a, in a nutshell, and therefore that didn't work out. So those plans were delayed, but uh, so you, you spoke, I was made it a value. So you spoke about Aliyah a lot in the shul? And, I, uh, I can't say a lot, but people knew. I always mention it, you know, Shabbat Agadol, Shabbat Shuvah, which I always ended with some type of a peroration about Israel and problems and opportunities. I, I spoke about it, but you have to say something that challenges people, but also to which they'll be receptive. And Aliyah is very difficult because it makes people feel guilty. Now, they would say to you, well, why don't you do it? And uh, you could say, sure, you're right, I should, but nonetheless, let's talk about it. And I used to phrase it like this, everyone, myself included, but everyone has to make the calculation at different points in their lives, what will it take what can I do to bring me to the land of Israel? And as long as these calculations are percolating in one's mind, it becomes more real as opposed to, as opposed to denying it. I'll tell you a fascinating vignette, sort of my introduction to uh, this area, because I know many rabbis avoided like the third rail because of the sensitivities involved. My first came B'nai Shurin, I gave a weekly uh, lecture series entitled Torah Topics. Random topics, you know, classic, Torah Shabbat, Shabbat, Kashrut, some halacha, but mainly philosophical background. I would get 70, 80, 90 people a week to come, and uh, it was very good. The second year, like middle of the year, 
Aliyah, that was the topic. All right. Six people showed up that night. <laughs> I lost my crowd. Most of your family. My, my rating, <laughs> friends and family, my ratings tanked for that particular topic. Why? People don't like to feel uncomfortable. So therefore, it has to be broached in a way that people understand that you're not embarrassing them or shaming them or threatening them. But nonetheless, you're trying to challenge and inspire them. Right. I think there are different levels. You know, I mean, to me, it's one level is that you know you belong here. Okay, so there are a lot of reasons why you can't come. Uh, family, financial, all kind of other things. But you know you belong. And another one is, no, I don't belong. I really belong where I am. And Aliyah is nice, but it's not for me. I mean, I think we should have to get to the level where everyone says, I know I belong here. But... Maybe it's not for me at this stage of my life, whatever it is. I think it's fine. I'd like rabbis to speak about that and talk about it honestly. I don't hear enough of it, honestly. I don't think I hear enough of it in America. Uh, I'd like to hear more of it if I possibly can. So I've know. actually heard rabbis say that they're intimidated yes, and they do are. not feel comfortable talking about it. I'll tell you a story. Just two weeks ago, I was talking to an American Jewish journalist, and she spoke at a Haredi school in Brooklyn about the problems in America now, Jew hatred, violence, right, right, assassin right. attacks, etc. And she said to them, this 12th grade class, that these problems are real. And we have to think about what our future in America is going to be like. And she said a 12th grade girl raised her hand and said to her, where are we supposed to go? And she said, wow, 12th grade education, Haredi school, it's as if she's never heard of the state of Israel exists. Unbelievable. No, it's amazing. What about your take on American Jewry? I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm not pessimistic about it. People say to me all the time when I come to Israel, and I, most of the time I come, I come for a week, 10 days. So people always ask me, so do you have a place in Israel? I said, yes, in the Inba Hotel. I said, I, you know, this is where I come. They go, but you know, what? God forbid there's anti-Semitism. What are you going to do? I said, I don't, let me ask you. So in other words, if there's anti-Semitism, pogroms, so my sister-in-law has an apartment. She's not going to let me come? I, I don't understand. Like, it depends you know, on not, your relationship. I, I, well, it depends. But I'm saying she'll let me come for a little while anyway. No, but I'm saying like, okay, I don't, not, I don't want to come here because I have this fear that, you know, what's going to happen. But I want to come because this is where I belong. But, you know, when you look at American Jewry, I, I don't know. What, what, what's your take on it? Well, firstly, those who can afford it should really buy apartments in Israel because uh, to be mercenary, it's a good investment. But to be practical from a Jewish perspective, it's a foothold in the land of Israel. And I think people have found, which is why it's become so common over the last 20 years, that when they have that foothold, their children tend to come and the children will stay. And when the children stay, the parents come more and more. And when the parents come more and more, eventually they say, you know what, we might as well stay. I should tell you, Steve, that I'm blessed now that my son made Aliyah in August, three oh, months wow. ago. So now all our children are here. Oh, can't do better than that. Four, do three daughters, one son, their spouses, and all the grandchildren are here also. So that's a tremendous bracha. Uh, so one lives in Shalayim, two live in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and one lives in Zichron Yaakov. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. So that's thank God, thank God they're all adjusting. That's a tremendous bracha. It really is a, uh, a dream. When my son stayed for us before his house was ready in Modi'in, so the rabbi welcomed him to shul, announces Aliyah, and he said, uh, he said, uh, Siam Galut Przansky. The Przansky exile has ended. Uh, <laughs> listen, it's a, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. What about, I think about assimilation in, in, you know, in, in America, I think all over the world. 
Is there any solution to that? I mean, I don't know. I rack my brains out about this all the time. I'm involved in a lot of different organizations. I've been chairman of Partners in Torah for so many years that my dream is to have a, a million Orthodox Jews learning Torah with somebody on the phone just so that they start to feel a sense of what Judaism is about. But I don't know. I just think we're losing the battle. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm right. a little bit pessimistic it's, about it yeah well i can't blame you for being pessimistic because the problem is getting worse before it's getting better and you know we're losing some of our own as well but i think the mistake that uh, american jews have long made is thinking that there's a substitute for torah that somehow is going to keep people jewish and it doesn't work it was tried trying for decades maybe israel identity will keep them jewish but we see more and more how Jews who are really not attached to Torah, they become anti-Israel because they are imbued with progressive values among which religion and nationalism are not encompassed. So therefore, it's almost a negative effect. So here's a bit of optimism. There's a problem of assimilation and intermarriage in American Jewry today. And we've had this before in our history, multiple times. Going back, I would say, well, in the problem during the era of the Shoftim, of course, it existed. Not so much intermarriage, but certainly assimilation. But clearly in Buffalo, there was a problem. And uh, after the uh, Roman exile began, there was a problem. And there's a reason why our numbers have not really increased in 2,000 years. Right. It's because of assimilation and intermarriage and, of course, physical persecution. Right. But our numbers don't increase. You could count the number of Jews who were killed, and they're far less than the number of Jews who have existed. Those Jews who have existed and were not persecuted to death, a good number of them intermarried. Spanish Jewry, many more were lost to, to assimilation, conversion, and intermarriage than were expelled from Spain. That's been the reality in every country. And of, and of course, in the 19th century, you had in Europe with the uh, Enlightenment right. and Emancipation, exactly right, 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 also right. a massive uh, defection from Jewish life. So I think it's somewhat comforting to realize that the problems are not new. Rav Cook wrote a sefer that dealt with this very problem. And he was writing in the teens. He wrote this during World War One. when he was in London. And he saw this is a problem of the right, generation. Right, right. And uh, therefore, it's not going to go away. Now, I think there are methods to deal with it, to try to reduce it. But we have to find the right people to do it and really embrace it as a value. A lot of, a lot of American Orthodox Jews even modern Orthodox Jews who've embraced the live and let live philosophy, which, you know, has its merits also, they didn't really want to do outreach because yeah. he's chosen that lifestyle. Well, 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 who might what, intervene? You know what I found? It's interesting because through my connection to Partners in Torah, and, and I, I have thousands of people who learn with someone, and I found that it's an incredible thing. Just it, it, it strengthens the people who are the teachers, but the people who are the students they get just a better connection to what Judaism is about. And my goal really is to say to them, listen, I want you to love Israel. I want you to be proud to be a Jew. And I want you to make sure that your children don't intermarry. If, you, if I could accomplish that goal, I know it sounds like a lot, but then I've done, I've done okay. We've kind of passed the baton to the next generation. But the thing that really shocked me when I started on this whole venture, talking to a lot of the people who were Orthodox, quote unquote, why they didn't want to do it. I thought it was going to be because they didn't have the time. The reason was they didn't know enough. They said, I don't feel comfortable. 
I said, wait a second. You That's spent a big indictment. Years, you spent 16 years or 18 years in the yeshiva system, and there's someone out there who knows nothing at all about Judaism. You don't feel comfortable explain, about explaining the Torah, your Shabbat, you don't, you don't feel comfortable. So that's really, to me, I mean, like I'm really pushing it a lot because it's the most, most effective economic situation where you take millions of people, you don't pay them any money, and they spend a half hour on the phone learning with somebody, it changes their life, it changes the other person, they become friends and so on. Because listen, I, I know all about NCSY, I could tell you wonderful stories and it'll make you cry, and Chabad, and Eishat Torah, but the numbers just there, so I, you know, the I, numbers I, are not there. It's a tremendous indictment of the educational system right. that it produces uh, after, like you say, a decade and a half of Jewish education. Right. People can't understand simple texts, and people can't answer simple questions. I used to rail about this uh, several times a year, and even spoke to principals about it. Right. As an example, I said, you know, come December. Every school starts teaching their students how to light Hanukkah candles. You add right left to right, you add right to left. I'm saying, and what about telling people what Hanukkah was about? Teach your students in 5th, 10th, and 12th grade, what is Hanukkah about? What was the struggle of Judaism against Hellenism? And how does it reverberate? No, it's much harder to teach. But part of the problem is... A lot of the rebellion are not capable of teaching yeah, that. No, no, no question And I always thought pe- the, the, the yeshiva spent too much time on Gemara and Halacha and not enough time on Hashkafa. So, to the extent that I've encountered people many times, even in the last few weeks, who asked the question by Jews who are not religious, why can't you turn a light on on Shabbat? On Shabbat? And, that, and one answered, well, my father told me not to do it. It's a grown man. That doesn't suffice. And when a Jew is not religious, for that matter, if a Gentile hears such a thing, he thinks you're a fool. Yeah, exactly. well, what are you doing? No, that's, there's, no, there's no question about it. So you have a blog. I know yes. that, right? So what do you do? I mean, I know you like to be out there, but the blog is for what? I originally started writing over a decade ago to disseminate ideas that I thought best to leave out of the pulpit, like a Shabbat morning sermon, because that's more of a captive audience. So if I wanted to speak about political issues, especially partisan political issues, I thought it was inappropriate to do it from that uh, venue because people come, they want to be inspired, etc. It's not to say from time to time some of it didn't bleed into my sermon right. also, I hear you. I hear but as a general rule, I tried to avoid it. It's not fair to people. Even people agree with me. They want to hear some Torah, all right? I was never one to you know, get up and speak about what the Times editorialized that week, especially since I stopped reading the Times on 20 years ago. I would editorialize about the Wall Street Journal. It's different. It's much more sacred. But even that I didn't do. So that's why I started the blog, and it enabled me to entertain a greater variety of topics, Uh, not just politics and culture, but also certain aspects of uh, religion and history that uh, from time to time I I talk about it in a shir or even in a drasha, but usually not. And that became a a different venue for it. Do you do it? Is it? every week how often do you blog 
No. So I used to write every week. And then uh, the last two years, I'm involved in writing books. And it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of sitting. <laughs> and uh, I write much more sporadically now. Well, the last two weeks, I wrote three pieces. Yeah, I read one. About yeah. The, about the elections. Right. I wrote on. three, actually. All published on Arutsheva about the upcoming election right. and then post and the, the election. And so on. That's okay. correct. Right. And then uh, so if in... something comes to mind that I feel is worthy of addressing, you then I write it. You yeah. don't do Twitter or... No, I don't not, do that. Not I'm not into that, that at TikTok, all. TikTok, you don't do TikTok. Nothing, nothing. Okay. I just okay. blog. I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay. not on, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. I actually have to marvel in a, in a sort of a pejorative way at people who think you can express a cogent thought in 144 characters without being snarky. And it's just not the venue. I could be snarky when I write also, but it, it's just not the you. venue that appeals to me. So what about this organization now, the Coalition for Jewish... Values. This is. I've been trying to figure out this organization for a long time. Every time I turn around, they have. A, they had a few more rabbis, fifteen hundred rabbis. Now it's seventeen hundred. Right. 2, yeah. So what, we have. So what? I mean, like, is this really kind of like? I'm not saying it's because of an outgrowth of those who were part of the RCA who felt they didn't really accomplish what they wanted as far as their values. And is it was it. Is that the idea of what it was? Uh, yes uh, and no. Uh, of the seven original founders, I think only three were members of the RCA. Oh, okay, okay. And others were members of other rabbinic organizations. I think the impetus was, it goes back to 2015, we started talking about it, and then came to fruition in 2016. There was a silence on the part of religious uh, Jewish organizations, whether RCA or OU, even sometimes Rabbinical Alliance. National Council was much more aggressive in areas of supporting Israel proactively. And what especially drove us was this idea that if a moral or cultural issue came up, the media ran to the reform as representatives of the Jewish community. And that really drove us crazy because the Orthodox organizations were hamstrung and even paralyzed in responding to these issues. First, everything I go through a committee. Right, so by true. the time they formulated a statement, the, the, the cycle moved on. So the reform was left unrefuted. And now we presented to the media, and Rabbi Menken, who's the managing director, has done this very effectively, rapid response. You know, get a statement, it'll circulate it amongst the uh, board within, within an hour Didn't or two. Didn't the Young Israel National Council feel that they were doing that? I mean, like, when I was president of the OU, so they would always criticize us, and, you know, you guys are very slow, bureaucratic, and you're not really representative of what religious Zionism is, is, is all about. But then, I mean, that, I guess it wasn't enough, right? No, they were doing that when, Pesach, when Rabbi Pesach Lerner was, was the president there, of the national, or executive vice president of the National Council. When he left, they stopped doing that. No coincidence, Rabbi Lerner was our first president. Oh, oh I know that, right. Of the that, right. That, that, that's so why. So now you actually have, is it a, done by a committee? I, I mean, we have a committee, I think, of uh, seven, eight people now. Are you part of that? I'm part of that, You're sure, of yeah. Israel representative. I'm the Israel region vice president. For Jewish values. That's correct. Are there any Balabatan that belong? Just no, rabbis. it's all rabbis. All, and there are 2,000 rabbis? It's all, I haven't counted, but we, we, we have tie, we, we have the spokesman for some rabbinic organizations oh, really? that have given us carte blanche to represent them in really? public I'm always on these moral values, when I hear, like, issues. 2,000 rabbis agreeing on anything, I was like, wow. This no, is... so we don't solicit from the, uh, oh, from the membership, although they absolutely can uh, send suggestions right. and participate. 
Right. Yeah, in that sense, it's open. But you know how unwieldy it is in an organization oh, to try to get a consensus from 20 right. Jews, rabbis, much less 2,000, or even 200. So, okay, there's a new rabbi now in B'nai Yishurin. I hear a lot of good things. People like him a lot, and obviously he's different than you. What do you think his challenges are going to be? If you're giving him advice, and you're sitting in a room just with him, Rabbi Schreier, and saying, look, let me tell you, give you some good advice, what would you tell him? Plan an exit strategy. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, thank God I hear he's doing well, and the people have embraced him. It's a honeymoon period, also. Yeah, there's really And no I think about that, you know, right? it's a little overwhelming at first because you're dealing with so many people, different backgrounds, different levels of observance and knowledge, and you have to try to coalesce them. I mean, B'nai and you recall, we had seven minyanim on a Shabbat, Shabbat morning, and you try to. Keep unified a shul of seven minyanim. Each minion, I should say, thinks they're the main minion of the shul, and it's a difficult management issue. But nonetheless, I, I think some of the issues he'll face are the same that I faced. I hope the shul maintains its very proactive uh, religious Zionist, I mean, not just like a you know right, wishy washy right. mealy mouth way, but you know we were we were going to Gaza for years, yeah, you right, know, and we right. supporting the settlements, etc. We had to oppose the government. We did when it was necessary. I, I think a lot of the cultural moral issues that he's had to deal with, uh, or he will have to deal with, are those that I did not have to deal with because the culture's changed. Right. I mean, I could see down the road, not just B'nai Yishurim, but how's a shul going to deal with a situation where a same-sex couple comes, wants to rent the social for their wedding? I agree. Right? Yeah. So I mean, it's very nice. The Supreme Court may not be supportive of the claim, but to get there after three, four years of litigation and spending money, it's not such a simple thing. And to deal with that, which I, I think, unfortunately, the American Jewish religious organizations are not dealing with at length. You know, everyone is very sensitive, and sensitivity and compassion are great. They're wonderful values, but you need standards also. And you need to uphold the integrity of Torah and do it in a way that's sensitive. So not, has, just, not just say, by the way, as people always do and rabbis do, let's discuss this issue and integration, but let's not talk about the halacha. Why you. not talk uh, about I, the halacha? I You're agree. rabbanim. I agree. So he, he's got a... He's got a Difficult job ahead of him, but you're right. There's a honeymoon period, you know. They used to have the joke about the three-year contracts for rabbis, chen v'chesed v'rachamim, you know, and that's uh, what it was. <laughs> so let's. I really want to end. I end all these, uh, you know, uh, podcasts with. Um, I don't want. I'm trying to think of a good name for it. I haven't thought of a good name. Whether it's lightning round, but and I don't want you to like have to give me an answer one second. But I want you to just kind of think about the question and then give me, give me whenever you're ready. Give me I don't an have to. I'm the world's leading expert on my opinion. This is true also, and, and, and not that many people agree, and other people do agree. Here we go. One, greatest person you ever met? That's a very good question. The greatest person I ever met. I mean, I could go in my, in my family, but I've been in the presence of many great people. I would say that the one who had the most profound impact on me because of his humility was Yosef Mendelevich. Okay. To think about what he endured right. and to Agreed. come out of it smiling and strengthened, that really is amazing. What about if you look at history, greatest person who ever lived? Who do you think it was? I mean, it's Moshe Rabbeinu. It's Alvin Ravinu because it's in Yana de Yoma, but uh, I mean... I, I, I never like when, you know, people start judging the figures in Tanakh based on modern standards, you know, sitting in judgment of them. I mean, these are people who walk with God, so we should have a little humility. What about one person today who's alive who you've never met, who you would like to meet? 
I think I've met everybody I want to meet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Okay, 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 good answer. No problem, right? right? I've met, you know, it's funny that uh, I mean, President Biden is fond of saying he's met every Israeli prime minister since uh, who knows what. Uh, so I've met every Israeli prime minister since uh, Begin. So what? What does that really mean? So, it, no, I can't think of anyone offhand. What about in history? Like if you could go back and you could say, okay, you could have dinner with anybody in history, who would it be? Well, I don't know if they want to eat with me, but, uh, you know, they had, we have, we've had so many giants with fascinating lives, like Rambam, for example. Okay. And you wonder, how did they endure all the suffering they right. endured right. and be as prolific as they were and influential historically as they were? So he may not want to eat with me, okay, my I think Ashkenazi he, food, but uh, I, nonetheless. I, th I think he would. What about the best speaker you ever heard? Well, I grew up listening to Rabbi Wine. And uh, people have said to me that uh, I sound a lot like him, except for the Chicago accent, which I always took as a tremendous compliment. So he was very good. Uh, I heard Begin speak. He was excellent as okay, well. Okay, Rabbi Wine, that's a good that's a yeah, great choice. Yeah. What about if like, But I was blessed. I mean, I was one of those teenagers. I, I, would I ever think of not listening to the rabbi sermon? On the contrary, I, I look forward to it of every course. week. And I found it to be tremendously influential in my life. So if you were in a foxhole, who would you want with you? I would probably want a, uh, I would say, a brigade of Green Berets <laughs> with me in the foxhole to get me out of the foxhole. Okay. Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. What about smartest person you ever met? The smartest person I ever met? I mean, uh, my Rebbe, Rebbe Chait, is Chait? a genius, a okay. humble genius, but he's, uh, his ability to analyze uh, Gemara Rishon brilliant. It's unparalleled. I've yeah. never seen anything like it. Amazing. What about the greatest leader you ever met? It's also hard to say. Um, That's why I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Tanya was a very skilled politician. Uh, as a leader, he's a little less effective, but nonetheless, he's had a long career because of some of that leadership skills. I never met Reagan, but he also knew the secret of leadership, which is to set goals and then find good people to execute them. So, Favorite writer? So I don't really read novels. Okay. I read mainly nonfiction when I'm reading. I used to love the columns of uh, George Will, Charles right. Kratheimer, Thomas Sowell. Right. Right. I mean, they're very, very good. So I always enjoyed reading them. Picked up a lot of vocabulary also from them and from William Buckley. William Buckley, very good. Here's a very simple question. You've been in Israel already. What's your favorite restaurant? My favorite restaurant in Israel. So I don't want people swarming no, uh, their restaurant. <laughs> that, that, that's correct. So my wife and I have been to this one restaurant many, many times again and again. It's an upscale restaurant in Modi'in called Rosa. Oh, okay. Mahadran, it's a nice ambiance and good food. Okay. Shabbos, favorite Shabbos song? Uh, yeah, so we don't really sing that many Zmirot in our home. <laughs> My wife laughs when I do sing. It's at uh, 10 uh, X speed. I hear you. We sing Curry Bone. You know, Curry Bone. Oh, right. It takes me three, uh, about 30 seconds or so. And Yom Zemechuba could take about 25 seconds. I hear you. Okay. But I'll tell you the truth. My, my, around the shop, Shabbat table, and going back to where the kids were young, we always spoke about ideas. Okay. Okay. We, like, we never had a formal Dvar Torah. But at the end of the meeting, someone was commenting this to me, there's no Dvar Torah. I said to him, by the way, the whole discussion, that was Torah. The whole conversation. What about tefillah? Favorite tefillah, pasuk? I've been privileged to daven ne'ilah now almost 40 years straight. 
And even in Israel, I have davened Ela in the, some of the shuls. And to me, it really is the high point of the year, not because I'm davening it, but because the connection to Hashem that you feel at that moment Correct. is unsurpassed. So that always stays in my mind. And I find that different times during the year, it could be Pesach or summertime, I start thinking of Ne'ilah and humming some of the tunes. And it just brings me to a different place, a beautiful place. So I know you've traveled a lot and so on. We have two last questions. One, your favorite vacation spot that you went to? We've been to a lot of places. Actually, we actually were partial to Aruba. Okay. It was very nice. But my last trip was actually uh, in September to Dubai. Okay. And I found yeah. it very, very impressive. The modernity, the sophistication, the luxury, the opulence, and the friendliness of the people yeah, and their openness to Jews. Been there. Yeah, astonishing. Yeah, yeah. I agree. All right, so the palace, the, uh, the, the Watan Palace in Abu Dhabi, that's an astonishing building. So I can't say my favorite vacation uh, spot, I hear you. but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's something. Okay, one last question. Any place in the world that you have not been that you still like to go? I think Australia, uh, only because it's a continent in itself and uh, there are Jewish communities there I'd like to visit. It's on my itinerary uh, long term, but that's it. Most places in the world I've been able to visit. I mean, South America also. Right. Brazil strikes me as a very fascinating place uh, to visit. And it's off season, as we say, both Australia and Brazil. So those would be interesting places. Wonderful. I have to tell you one other thing. Go there ahead. are many places in Israel that I feel I should visit also. Yeah. Sometimes the papers have these uh, nature tours and waterfalls right. and beautiful sites. I said, wife, we're living here. Why don't we go there? It's a beautiful place to see. No, no, no so I hope to explore the wonderful land that God gave us. Rabbi Przezinski, like always, a great, great pleasure to have you on the program. Continue Hatzlacha to you and um, continue to do the wonderful things you do. And, uh, you know, unrestricted. You've always been unrestricted. So I think it's a blessing. Thank you so Steve, much. Steve, thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Always thank my you. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.